Public Research Podcast with Daniel Schwartz. Episode 6. Nicholas Grossman, Professor of Political Science at the University of Illinois on the State of the American Right, Trump, Israel, and Antisemitism. First question for you is, whenever I meet somebody who knows politics like you do, and I want to like get to know what, what the read is on things, I think to understand 2023 or this era, you really have to go back to 2015. Uh, would you sort of agree with that? What about 2015? Well, the the Trump thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, I, that, that still is the defining sort of crux moment. Yeah, so if you put it that way, it's like the, I don't know if I'd necessarily mark a date, you know, and I can give you different, say, important dates, uh, but the the Trump thing, uh, I think, is clearly the most either dominant or kind of overarching issue or maybe frame for American politics of this period. I saw, it turns out that I happened to see something, uh, it's interaction I had on social media, in which someone claimed, uh, they saw a stat that said that uh, young Americans are much less likelier today to say, meaning 18 to 29 year olds, today that they are very proud of their country than they were 10 years ago. So just in 2013, it declined by 40 something points. And I saw somebody argue, a conservative writer from National, uh, National Review, argue that uh, this was uh, a change from the kind of optimistic liberalism of Hamilton and Obama uh, to then the book by Ta-Nehisi Coates um, called uh, Between the World and Me, which came out in 2015, uh, and that was negative about that. And I reacted to this, uh, like, you think that Ta-Nehisi Coates's book was the most significant thing in American politics in the last 10 years? Like, that's the thing that you think explains a lot of it. And so I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, too. And yes, I think it's very safe to say that the overarching question revolves around Trump and Trumpism. I'd like to compare notes with you on how you saw that election, sort of maybe like the day before the 2016 election. Uh, uh, let me just begin with um, how I perceived it back then. And it's it's sort of embarrassing. I really just got a lot of stuff wrong. Yeah, um, a lot of people did. I wasn't – the important part that I, I should mention is I was not on Twitter. And I was quite busy. So I missed a lot of things. Like looking back, I think if I had been on Twitter in 2016, I would have seen a lot of these um, – you know, like the the Nazis sending the, the gas chamber memes to David French. But at the time, I just didn't see that. And so I, I didn't have a positive view of Trump. But I remember I'm from the Midwest. But, you know, I've been to Ohio. I've seen the sort of devastation of, of globalization on the Rust Belt. Um, and I remember during the, the debates... Trump was saying, and you lost all the jobs in China and it wiped us out. And all you have to do is look at Michigan and look at Ohio and look at all of these places where so many of their uh, their jobs and their companies are just leaving. They're gone. And then it would go to Hillary and she'd be like, you called this woman Miss Piggy. And he called this woman Miss Piggy. Then he called her Miss Housekeeping because she was Latina. Donald, she has a name. Where did you find her? Name? And I was just like, well, what about the China thing? So I, I almost ha I did have a positive view of Trump changing the consensus on trade with China and sort of also giving up the 
cutting Social Security Paul Ryan thing. And it took me a long time to see that all the all those warnings that he was releasing Pandora's box as far as hatred were, was really true. When I started seeing this Nick Fuentes and stuff, what was your perception back then around like the day before? So that's really interesting that you say that because part of that overlaps a lot with me and part of it doesn't. Um, the the first part, the one that you've emphasized, is one that I think too, and I haven't heard many people say, which is that uh, I felt like I had missed something and missed something pretty big. So, you know, I mean, I was watching it as it happened. And uh, the thing that I dialed on after, because I also was not on Twitter, I think I might have opened an account, but I never used it. And I started getting on only with the uh, 2016 election. That's what got me on to that and also Medium and got me you know, more involved with this and more uh, open about talking about politics online. And the thing that I remember being surprised about by the uh, 2016 election was I thought that I was somebody who had a good sense of American politics in particular because I was widely read. You know, I made a point of uh, reading liberals and conservatives and Republicans and Democrats and centrists and some that you might call like democratic socialists and some uh, that, I don't know, what word do you want to use for them, but farther right. And um, I would, uh, you know, and I would read all this. And after the 2016 election, uh, it occurred to me that I was reading widely, except that, for example, all the liberals and all the conservatives that I read had graduate degrees. You know, that these were like the, um, I was reading National Review and uh, the, I don't know, conservative columns in the Wall Street Journal, you know, that sort of thing to get a sense of what Republicans thought. And it turned out that those people were pretty out of touch with their own party, where the things that I couldn't really stand reading. So something like, for example, Breitbart, which really had its heyday around the 2016 election, was something I, I couldn't stand reading because I would look at it and I would instantly just see things say, and I would react with, I know that that's not true. Like not a matter of opinion, you know, you, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but that this was just making up facts. It was just BS and it wasn't true. And it was also very poorly written, kind of poorly argued. And so I couldn't get through it. And then I made a point after the 2016 election of following a variety of uh, what you could call alt-right or maybe populist right, I think kind of the more polite terms. Their critics would probably call them fascists at this point. But with uh, those, I made a point of following a lot more of those accounts on social media because I could take it in small doses and it gave me a better sense of what was going on. The part where I differed from you pretty considerably is I grew up in New York and I had a uh, sense of who Donald Trump was from before the election. And like many people from New York, I thought it was kind of a joke and that people would see through it. And clearly they were into it. Um, and then on the third point you raised, uh, I'm in the camp that says, and I think this is pretty well backed by evidence at this point, that the uh, cultural issues were a bigger part of Trump's success than economic issues. I don't want to say that economic issues had nothing to do with it, because one thing that he did that Republicans didn't previously do was drop a lot of the Paul Ryan stuff and, you know, stop saying to things like old people, hey, we're going to take away your Social Security and Medicare. And instead started saying what, what Trump pitch, Trump's pitch was, was I'm going to increase your Social Security and I'm going to increase your Medicare, you know, or give you more better health for more money, which was a lie, but was still, you know, part of a sales pitch. Um, for better health care for more money. And I'm also going to really crack down on the Mexicans and the Muslims and kind of kick them out. And that 
Um, though the latter sentiment was probably more important of the two, but that there were factors of both. And I think that since uh, the United States has progressed kind of through the, the Trump era, that those issues have lingered, but that the people who from cultural resentment carried him to power in the first place are at this point the dominant faction in the Republican Party. Oh, I, I, I would totally agree. I mean, I think, yeah, it's not, it's, I'm not signing on to the, uh, yeah, the, eco, yeah, I believe it is the cultural issues, but I would say that his message on trade, um, on China was very, I think it was really appealing. I, I think it did it because I remember quite clearly, if you look at Clinton, Bush and Obama, you know, they sort of just had a hands-off attitude. Like, you know, there's nothing we can do. All these jobs are they're going to be in China, and, you know, everybody can just be like a work in marketing or fast food. So you I know? think that, yeah, that latter part is a big part of it, which was that the, what you might think of as, uh, I would say not just the Democratic, but kind of like the neoliberal establishment uh, response, and also the, uh, which was the dominant faction of the Democratic Party, and the response was, this is how economics works. This is bigger than any of us. This is out of our control. And so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, provide you with, we understand, you know, your job, uh, you had a job in a factory and the factory closed and that, uh, you know, that's, that's bad and that's harsh. And so what we're going to do is try to get you things like, we're going to make sure that there are good new job training reprograms that come to your state. Uh, you know, this was mocked as learn to code. Like, oh, you lost your job in a coal mining factory? Well, guess what? There are a lot of jobs in computer science. You know, you could possibly get into the tech industry and we'll pay for the training. Um, or there are some ideas that we'll pay for you to move somewhere else. Uh, or um, we'll pay some company, we'll subsidize a company to open a different type of factory there. And part of the reason why that lacked appeal to a lot of people is the same cultural issue. So something like, I'll just use coal as an example. Uh, coal is not just an economy to a lot of the people who do it at this point. Way more Americans work in retail, like, you know, in clothing stores than work in coal. And yet the coal industry is concentrated in a part of the country, and it has such a strong culture around it that going into the coal mine sucked. It was, you know, really awful work, and people got black lung, and they, um, you know, worked in the dark and with bad air all the time. And um, they built up, and this happens in many different, you know, cultures with similar uh, trying circumstances, people built up a culture of nobility about it, that there is something really noble about a man going and sacrificing all this by going into the coal mines and then his family, you know, and raising his family as a result. And so oh, there's a, a big yeah. attachment to it. And in 2016, Hillary did the same, I'll help try to retrain you. And Trump just went to them and said, I love coal, I'm going to bring it all back. And the one of the lessons of 2016 is he never had the slightest bit of uh, economic explanation for how he was going to do it. He didn't even try to offer a plan of how he was going to do it. But clearly, a lot of the, those voters really just wanted somebody to say, I'm going to bring it all back. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to listen to the people who say you have to drop that cultural aspect. And that part worked. And then one other really quick thing. I think you're right on the resonance of the China and trade argument. And that the best way to see it is both that Bernie Sanders, the you know main Democratic rival to Hillary Clinton in 2016, made a similar, you know, not the same style, but also anti-trade uh, argument with China, anti-free trade, anti-NAFTA. And even Hillary Clinton, 
who had helped negotiate some of those deals started making similar type of arguments. I bet she was probably, if she got elected, would probably have ended up doing something like, oh, I fix my concerns with whatever. But even on the campaign trail, she also was saying that she was going to crack down on trade with China or ditch the Trans-Pacific Partnership or other things. So that clearly was an issue that resonated with a lot of people. I think you're right on that one. You know, there's a never Trump writer who I, I, I used to have, you know, I used to sort of laugh at him, but I, I think he's become a sort of thoughtful commentator, Tim Miller. And he had a recent book and he was reflecting on, you know, what, what did we make a mistake? You know, should we have come up with, with and I really do think that is definitely true. Like they left this gaping void of of a more populist on trade and immigration whatever thing open for trump i mean, just completely open and they were just stuck in this you know i'm gonna i mean i remember 2012 it's so funny to look back on that election because mitt romney's like big rallying cry was it was like um the way I would describe it, I think the Romney 2012 campaign was one of the just hilariously worst uh, campaigns ever. But I don't know if you remember, but their whole thing was this like victimhood for job creators. Mm-hmm. The idea to say that Steve Jobs didn't build Apple, that Henry Ford didn't build Ford Motor, to say something like that is not just foolishness. It's insulting to every entrepreneur, every innovator in America, and it's wrong. Like, go vote for your boss. <laughs> you know, like uh, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't even like go vote for your boss. It was uh, go vote, go vote for the guy who fired you because you feel bad for your boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you know, to completely divorced from the fact that you know most Americans are not job creators. Do you think they? What explains that, that they just left it, their party so open to being taken over in that way? So I think a lot of the answer to that uh, is something that probably a lot of Republicans don't like hearing, but which is that a Democratic critique of their party, while probably overstated, had some truth to it, which was that the Republican elites were feeding the base uh, cultural resentment in order to then turn around and cut their own taxes and cut taxes for you know rich people and cut regulations um, that there and this one goes back pretty far this is back to the the big realignment I'd say before Trump or maybe you can say there's another one with Ronald Reagan but the the realignment in the mid 20th century um, with the Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy and uh, parts of this with um, other Republican candidates Barry Goldwater for example um, and the Republican Party would make a lot of arguments when candidates were running about a lot of cultural stuff, like say, you know, in some cases, very specific issues like abortion, um, other things like, uh, I don't know, gay marriage or immigration or others that are at least partially social issues. And then they would say a lot of this while campaigning, and then they would get elected, and then they would focus on economic issues, and then they would focus on the job creators, and they would rely on things like the media or public speeches to get people riled up and to keep people angry without ever actually delivering something for them. And so I think a big part of the reason why they were open to uh, the kind of Trump insurgent campaign 
was that they had spent such a long time thinking that their trick had essentially worked. They were taking it for granted that you don't need to actually give any of these people any of this stuff. You just need to keep them angry. That this is uh, famously Lee Atwater saying how um, you used to be able to, this is like, you know, uh, later 20th century, used to be able to say, and he said, you know, N-word, 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 which you know, he actually says it, but um, that used to be able to say that, and now you can't, so now you have to say things like forced busing or schools, and, you know, but people get it. Um, and this, you know, so has been going on for a long time, and the party in a lot of ways took it for granted that they could go and try to cut a lot of their voters, uh, you know, cut their own Medicare and cut their Social Security or cut uh, other things. And a lot of those voters wanted those benefits. They like those benefits. They're not ideological economic conservatives. They're not really small government people. What they always were were more conservative culturally, religiously, uh, socially, and they wanted somebody who was going to appeal to that while also uh, ditching the economics that they were never in on in the first place. They just supported because, or went along with, uh, because the Democrats, who they hated for a number of social and cultural reasons, were on the other side of that. How did Trump turn out versus your expectations? You know, so if like, if on the badness meter, from zero to a hundred. If you thought it was going to be a fifty or whatever, did it end up being a forty or a seventy? Or looking back now, what what would you say? That's a great question, and I don't um, I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. At least not phrased that way. Because I am uh, I'm pretty proud of my record on the stuff, the things I've written about on the Trump presidency, and of uh, doing things about writing what what I think he would do and. Um, writing, you know, for example, there's a an essay that I, I think holds up really well after he was acquitted by the Senate. It is his first impeachment in early 2020, um, in which I closed with something like uh, quoting Mitt Romney, huh, who you brought up of all people, saying that uh, Trump abusing power to try to manipulate an American election was one of the worst abuses he could possibly think of. And I closed by saying, well, now that Trump just got away with it and saw that Senate Republicans, enough of them will protect him no matter what he does. Why wouldn't he try it again? And was issuing a bunch of warnings about things that ended up being uh, the, the coup attempt in January 6th in advance. That said, um, I was, so I thought the foreign policy was going to be really bad. And I think I kind of nailed that one. And I don't know, close to maybe 90, um, where the signs were there already early on that he was a combination, a dangerous combination of uh, very ignorant about a lot of things that uh, the way that the world works. I don't mean even matters of opinion, just like basic ways the world works and uh, totally uninterested in learning the ways that the world works, very transactional and uh, meaning, you know, somebody who was bribable and uh, one who would, uh, and emotional, it was subject to flattery. And in particular, somebody who clearly has a degree of personal admiration and jealousy of authoritarians. So that part, I'd already written things even, you know, during the election and uh, between uh, the election when Trump took office about the foreign policy. I think I got that part pretty well. Um, I'm not going to claim credit for predicting a lot of kind of internal attacks on the rule of law. I always like to try to be optimistic. You know, I'm often second guessing myself. Am I, uh, you know, I didn't like Trump. I didn't like the campaign he ran in 2016. Does that mean that I'm more pessimistic than I should be? Uh, I had considerable uh, high opinion of some of the people that he had put around himself. 
uh, including the national security and defense types. So um, in particular, H.R. McMaster, who is briefly Trump's national security advisor, um, is someone who is uh, a very big deal in uh, my uh, more academic area of focus, uh, terrorism and insurgency, um, that has written a lot of great stuff about insurgency and uh, also uh, counterinsurgency and did quite a bit of it in Iraq to great success, at least in his little part of it, um, relative to other attempts. But so I thought that there would be, I don't know, I guess maybe a, a better way to answer this question is um, I tend to think a lot of the future is not all that predictable. And so I didn't really try to predict it. I didn't give any sort of specific, he's going to do this, he's going to do that, because I think that that is not the best way to go about uh, thinking of the future. So instead, like after that first impeachment, it was more, oh, uh, Trump is going to try to do something to manipulate the election to his own advantage that goes against previous American norms, quite possibly breaks American laws, and goes against the Constitution. But I didn't say something like the actual details of what he used to try to stay in power, because that I wouldn't really be able to know. But I thought that by both character and record, it was pretty clear that everybody who kept on saying things like the system will contain him or he will grow into the presidency was wrong and always wrong. And I feel vindicated in that one. One of the most interesting things about uh, Trump, his political career, is he gets into office and the GOP has full control of the government. All three branches, branches, the Senate, the Congress, the presidency, and he campaigned on build the wall. And his first budget, I think it was his first two budget requests. And this is supposed to be where the White House, you know, says this is, they can say like aspirational, you know, what they want. And I think it was it might have been as low as 1.5 billion but i it was definitely no higher than 3 billion was their request for the border wall <laughs> and then he waited for the republicans to like lose the congress and then he was like yeah now i i i need the uh 20 or 10 billion for the border wall and then also another story that comes up is uh, you remember the, there was the Georgia runoff at the end of his term? Sure. And he had no he had no involvement in this whole checks deal that the Democrats and Republicans came up with, but he waited till it at the end of it, and then he gave a speech and he was like, "This just sucks. I wish it was more money, but I gotta sign it." And so I I tell those two stories because I I still wonder. Does he have any actual interest in the presidency, or does he just want to be the center of attention and tweet about Mika Brzezinski's face bleeding? So I think those two incidents that you raised do shed a lot of light on the answer to this question, which is that policy is not at all a priority for Trump, and uh, or for that matter, for many of his supporters. So when you take those two examples of, you know, he's he's promising them a wall, but then doesn't actually build it. But in part, 
what a lot of his voters really wanted was not necessarily this practical construction. I mean, they would have liked to see it, but not, you know, say this, you know, physical construction and not least because it's not actually a good policy. Most of the illegal immigrants that come into the United States come in through legal ports of entry or can come in by sea. It's a things and then they overstay their visa. So the number of people who of the percentage of the illegal immigrants in the United States that are sneaking across low manned areas of the U.S. Mexican border is actually quite small. And so building a wall would have, and certainly the drug smugglers, they're not uh, going, you know, through there. They're sticking things like on variety of trucks and boats and through tunnels and, um, you know, to actually ship in larger amounts. You can't really take a, a truck through the Rio Grande Valley um, off road, you know, for example, um, can't get it across the river. So uh, they, are not actually interested in this physical wall going up and it wouldn't actually solve many of the problems that they've raised. But what they really are interested is in is a president who is going to publicly be a jerk to Mexicans. So the appeal of build the wall is sort of like a middle finger to Mexico and are just saying it, you know, and they're going to pay for it. And I don't know how many people actually bought that Mexico would pay for it, but they liked hearing somebody be a jerk to Mexicans. And when Trump said also in 2016 that a Mexican-American judge, a guy who was born in Indiana and is a you know, confirmed federal judge, uh, couldn't um, fairly adjudicate his case because... Uh, adjudicate a case that Trump was involved in because the judge is Mexican. Um, and Paul Ryan went and called this an example of textbook racism. And still, a lot of Republican voters were not just not appalled by it, but were into it. Um, and so with the checks one, um, with later of the uh, COVID checks, I think is a great example of this because uh, Trump never put in the effort to actually make policy happen. Uh, you can see that it's on his, it's actually the only exception, the only thing he really got through were the tax cuts. So he cut his own taxes and he cut his kids' inheritance tax, but, uh, and you know, some of his friends' taxes, but otherwise he didn't really pass any legislation. He didn't pass Obamacare. He didn't even have an idea of how to replace it. Uh, he didn't build the wall. He, um, you know, so many of these other things didn't actually do, or if he did, did quite poorly. Um, and backfired by his own goals. I don't. I don't mean that I didn't like it. I mean uh, that you know by his own stated goals, like when he said he would scrap the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the big trade agreement, and he was going to get a better trade deal with each of the countries involved, just a bilateral deal, one-on-one in the United States. And he got literally zero. He got none of them to agree to a deal uh, to the U.S. And he didn't even really try that much. But he did say uh, that he was, you know, being tough and people really liked the show. So with the checks, what he was able to do was he wouldn't actually get this policy through. He didn't have some sort of uh, number in his head based on various macroeconomic calculations of what the ideal amount was that would, you know, maximize the increased demand while minimizing the effect on inflation or anything along those lines. He just saw an opportunity to be on the record saying that he could say in the future, I said, hey, everybody, I said you should get more money. And that's it. And there's really not much uh, more to it. And a lot of the voters really seem to want the show, to be really into it. And you can see this with the way that many, even Republicans, are responding negatively to the campaign of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Because DeSantis is running on a pitch of 
I am competent at things like governing and legislation, and I can actually put these policies into practice. And as people sees him trying to put those things into practice with things like uh, having a big public fight with Disney and going to court over it because the uh, people at Disney said that they didn't like a law that DeSantis had passed that they thought it was anti-gay. And for a company expressing an opinion, he's bringing the powers of state cracking down on them. And a lot of people are weirded out by that. And his support, which was never great, has declined. And I think that is further evidence that what a lot of Republicans want is the show. And that doesn't make it that Trump can't do a lot of damage in other ways. Uh, a really interesting thing about authoritarianism, and this comes out of uh, Hannah Arendt uh, writing in the 1950s, but about how uh, a wannabe authoritarian's incompetence can actually help them advance their project, or even if it's not a specific project, can help them uh, create democratic backsliding towards authoritarianism. And the reason why is because they don't go about, you know, competently, ruthlessly purging uh, some civil society and various agencies. They just keep on pushing in this, they keep on breaking rules and they keep not caring about norms and they keep on doing these various, you know, selfish abuses of power and they keep on screwing things up. And then competent people say, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And moral people are like, I can't be a part of this. You know, I can't do it. I believe in the constitution and that hollows out the institutions. And then it allows the wannabe authoritarian to put loyalists instead of people that are hired for things like skill and patriotism into those positions. Um, and so it is still quite dangerous but what Trump's biggest, I think, political appeal is, uh, and possibly by instinct, possibly by strategy, you know, maybe some combination of the two, but recognizes that a lot of the Republican base wants what is basically a real life reality TV show and not so much the actual nitty gritty of governing, which is tedious and boring. I, I agree, but I, but I hear people say this and I will say one thing. I will say one thing. If Trump came out tomorrow and says, you know, I've changed my mind on trade and immigration. I want no tariffs. Um, I think, you know, it's more efficient to just do all our manufacturing in China and we, we should focus on high tech. And, uh, oh, and I think we should triple legal immigration. I do think that would hurt him. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm not oh, saying it would, sure. it would yeah, kill yeah, him. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, I don't want to give the impression that he yeah. is at all immune to policy. That I can yeah, add to yeah, your yeah. list if he said things like, right. Uh, right. all abortion should be legal and I'm going to fight to make sure that happens. Right. Uh, I'm making the official state religion right. of the United States Islam. Islam. I mean, like you can think of all the different you I'm know, things that would- I'm converting Sufi Islam. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, right. all these right. things that could infuriate people. So right. sure, sure. It's not that right, it's right, immune right. to policy. It's that you can see him right. change policy based yeah. on kind of just reading the crowd. Like right. the thing that he should be most proud of of his entire presidency is giving a big push to get the COVID vaccine out fast. And that is something that he not only doesn't tout, he actively runs away from because it is now clear to him that the Republican base has gotten a lot more anti-vax. Yeah, and I'm, so I'm, I'm, he'll just ditch it, you know, because he's not committed to policy. I'm shocked I'm still alive. I was supposed to die like a year ago from a vaccine, <laughs> according to uh, all the crazy COVID uh, conspiracy yeah but um why don't we come up to this very uh well-regarded article you wrote on arc digital the new rights theory of power is insane if you don't mind sure so i think this actually can connect pretty well to the conversation we were having about some element of i'd say grievance that 
drives at least part of the Trump support and also it was part of the DeSantis support, but kind of that new right support. So um, the argument that I wanted, that I was taking on uh, in that article is one that I think is fairly prominent on the right today, uh, which is that the the left are really uh, far leftists, radical leftists, communists, you know, take your, uh, pick a synonym, um, but that the far left has taken over all of our institutions and, or at least all of our important kind of major institutions and has been using them to persecute conservatives. And uh, this is an argument that when you actually think about it sounds ridiculous. And I think maybe that's one reason why uh, there haven't been many people who took it on directly, but it is something that a lot of prominent people on the American right and really Western right uh, today tell themselves and tell each other and believe. And that if you, you know, so I quoted, for example, uh, Christopher Rufo, a prominent right-wing activist, somebody that uh, is at a think tank and that also Ron DeSantis has empowered to reshape uh, the higher education system in Florida, the university system, and to try to purge wokeness out of it, kind of use state power to crack down on ideas and speech that they don't like. Um, and he describes it as, and this is just one example, there are many others I could give, but he describes what he's trying to do as laying siege to the institutions. We need to recapture the institutions and the radical left, you know, or uses terms like that, radical leftists have taken over all our institutions. We're finally going to start fighting back. And is this argument specifically that fuels a lot of the rationalizations for some anti-democratic or one might say anti-American actions that the element of uh, right-wing activists and Trumpists and kind of MAGA Republicans um, have at least some of them embraced over the last few years. And that, so I wanted to take on that frame directly because it's nuts. Uh, it's, and I see it a lot online. You know, you mentioned Twitter earlier. I'd say there's a very common thing for the online right, for uh, people who are actively vocally uh, on the right, whether explicitly Trumpist or pro-DeSantis or maybe somebody else um, in the United States, but uh, broadly on the right. And uh, they use it as a rationalization. And it's just not true. And when I, and I mean, it's pretty far from true. And when I say this, the I, I often get a response um, of people who don't like, you know, say, the argument that I'm making, but or who want to disagree with it, get a response like, "Oh, but there is, you know, these uh, DEI, a diversity um, and uh, the equity and inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. That there are these uh, programs, like, you know, I have to go to a seminar at a, a university, or universities have asked people, asked potential applicants to give a DEI statement, or um, the uh, people in, you know, someone in this corporate world in HR." Uh, the um, HR is, uh, you know, adopting this DEI stuff. And uh, where my response to this is, do you realize how small that is? Like, I, I don't have any issue with people making arguments about that or expressing opinions, but uh, that is not all of academia or all of the corporate world, let alone all institutions, that the idea of these crusading leftists have taken over everything is you first need to ignore all of the divisions on the left. You know, the fact that the anybody who calls themselves a socialist or a social democrat or a progressive uh, is pretty darn negative about the centrist establishment. You know, these were the people that were disappointed that Joe Biden won the Democratic primary. And to say that actually they run everything uh, is pretty absurd. You also need to make a very narrowly social conservative definition of left and right. So for example, 
uh, you need to ignore that there are so uh, the following institutions, right? So if the leftists control everything, that means in order to say that we have to assume that the following have no power, uh, the Supreme Court and various lower courts and states, including Texas and Florida, which are quite big, and the Electoral College and U.S. Senate seats. And if you want to get out of politics, we can add the uh, most watched news network, which is Fox, the uh, most shared articles on Facebook, which typically come from Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino. Uh, the I, I mean, I could keep going with this sort of on and on of these different institutions, you know, churches and the uh, energy industry and the finance industry and um, that the idea that none of these people have any influence or power in America is nuts. The idea that they are totally dominant and nobody else has influence or power in America would also be nuts. But the version of it, because it is fueling so much politics, uh, that, here, you know, actually, let me give a specific example that, that I raised. So um, when the narrowly social conservative of Hollywood, uh, Hollywood, I think it's fair to say, you know, on balance on the cultural left um, and has you know tried uh, advances values frequently of things like um, treat gay people as equals, uh, girls are tough too. You know, um, often looks down on religious people. You know, so I, I don't think that that oh, it's basically on the left is unreasonable. But also right now they are at the forefront of the fight against labor. That you see the actors and the writers striking as the Hollywood studios try to make sure that they can keep any future profits derived from artificial intelligence for themselves. So they're at the forefront of labor. So we need to cut out of, of fighting labor. So to say Hollywood's on the left, first we need to cut out all of the economic aspects of it. And we also need to forget that they uh, show entertainment that says things like, you know, guns are awesome, money is awesome, and you should try to get it. Uh, that Ayn Rand type of arguments, like uh, these rich, smart, great men who play by their own rules are being held down by bureaucracy. That's basically like most superhero movies and action movies. You know, Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark, just get out of their way. It's kind of like the fantasy of uh, John Galt or, or other ones. Um, and this doesn't make me say, oh, Hollywood is, you know, totally neutral or Hollywood is actually on the right. Just that even in this supposedly quintessential leftist institution, there is not this overwhelming left-wing dominance that is seeking to persecute their enemies. And that argument is something that a lot of the right believes, really believes, or at least repeats to each other so often that they believe. And part of the reason why they believe it is it's a very convenient rationalization. Why do you need to do things like use state power to crack down on speech in ways that go against the First Amendment and go against things that conservatives were arguing as recently as, I don't know, eight years ago? Well, because the left did it first. So that's a rationalization for so much of this stuff, except and, and, the left because, didn't do it first. And because we're weak, you know, we it gives us an excuse to use these tools because we're this David and they're this Goliath, right? Also, it, you know, it, it's so funny. It's like they don't care at all about the inequality and the, fi the economic stuff. Their idea of real power is... I was walking through the movie theater and I saw that the new Spider-Man is black. Right. Uh, I think that that's is example, real power. Uh, or a um, a lot of it, uh, a part that I find you know, really absurd, but um, a lot of it is uh, anti-gay uh, or anti-LGBT, especially, especially anti-trans nowadays. So another example of power that I think, you know, would say, oh, like the new Spider-Man is black. Uh, or like, you know, they cast a woman in this part instead of a man, um, or especially something like uh, 
so uh, you know at at work uh somebody went and said like you know hi i'm jane i, I prefer they them and i wanted to say no no you're jim and i'm going to call you he him but if i do that you know like hr is going to give me a talking to uh right. and that is i think true you know in terms of uh it is true that you used to be able to say that thing freely and uh now the authorities in your office will say no that's treating your coworker with disrespect don't do it so that is a real change. I think it is reasonable for somebody who doesn't like that, of someone, let's say, socially conservative, um, who says, you know, like, I don't like that. I don't think I should have to. And it, where it would be a complaint. Where it gets to ridiculous is thinking that that is the entirety of power, of ignoring economic power, of ignoring uh, a lot of institutional power, a lot of political power, of, uh, and also an immense amount of cultural power. Uh, in, you know, movies and, and books and, I don't know, NASCAR and various sporting things like college football and um, just other ways in which there is still considerable cultural power. And so with the change that they've experienced and or, or you know, heard about if they're born more, more recently, but is that it is true that social conservatives had more dominance in America in the past, that social and religious conservatives more in the past than they do today. But what happened is they went from just the country assuming that they were the norm, they were the default, and that they could basically tell everybody else what to do, to them being a large, powerful faction within America that has to compete in the political and economic marketplace. And right. that doesn't make people oppressed, but it is something that I can understand why somebody might lament losing. Yeah, I want to get into that later. I just want to say my my two cents on this which is i you know I, it, it it won't happen but it would be very interesting as an experiment if every time like right wing people watch these like scaremongering videos about um you know gender studies departments that if there was a little pop up that came up on the screen that said actually um there's only 12 people in the gender studies department at your state university, but there's like 10,000 people in the business department or something. Uh, there's only, you know, 30 PhDs in gender studies a year, or like if they're watching one of these scaremongering transgender people in sports videos, if there was a little pop-up and said, there's only two um, transgender students yeah, playing sports in Arizona. Yeah, I think the great yeah. example. It, yes. It, as yeah, soon absolutely. as you bring in numbers and then you just say, I know it appears to you that this is a huge thing, but it's actually not. I mean, it really deflates it, you know. Uh, in theory, I, I think that in a lot of cases, the, well, you know what? I don't know. Because I said we've never really seen that, right? Because uh, the, the only way that would hypothetically work, and again, this won't happen, is if that was on like all the videos so that people couldn't just go elsewhere. So an example of this was um, in after the 2020 election, Fox News started telling the truth about, you know, Trump lost. And uh, then they found that a lot of their viewers left for OANN and Newsmax and other places that would lie to them and say that there was this massive fraud. And then Fox started saying it too. And so any, like with the example here, actually, you know, the trans athlete thing, I think that's a really good example, is really small. So like when you're, what we're talking about here is just a couple athletes in the entire state, and really only like one of them is actually competitive. 
Now, I think there is something there of where somebody who goes through male puberty competing in women's sports in college, for example, that there are tough questions there. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole point of girls' sports league and women's sports leagues is to have women compete where they don't have to physically compete against men um, and or people with, uh, say, uh, male who, well, who went through male puberty, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, And so there are some, you know, questions there. So I don't want to say that this has no questions to it. But to have the government crack down on every like high school athlete, or there are you know these proposals to have things like um, you know school officials checking genitals to make sure that the kids are supposed to be in the right locker room or other stuff of the and you know with I, I can think in part as a parent like I don't want any of you pulling down my kids' pants. Are you insane? Uh, and the level of bureaucracy for this and all to hunt out that one or two, you know, trans kids that are playing sports um, is is absurd, is absurd, no matter right. what you think about it. And uh, where, you know, driven in part by bigotry. And so I, I worry and I like to be more optimistic, but I think so. I don't think this is true of everybody, but I worry that even with something like the facts, the response is that to reject the facts, to then treat you as a, either a political enemy or just to dismiss you, you know, as a, um, with a conspiracy theory style, like, oh, you're just the establishment, or, you know, you're them. Um, and so I don't, not only do I not need to trust you, or I don't need to believe you, not only that, but I'm going to assume that I, the opposite of whatever you say is true. And there's a lot of reinforcement for that, both in conservative media and online, where you can find communities that will agree with you. You know, I mean, the best right. example, of this is probably QAnon. Right. I wanted to ask you about what, you know, macro theories of understanding U.S. politics today. Um, but I and I think I had three written down. One was um, the first theory that I, I'm intrigued by. And I, I, I might have stolen this from someone or I came up with that. I don't know. But one theory to understand, like QAnon, for instance, is Donald Trump got millions of people who were totally disinterested in politics interested for the mm-hmm. first time because he, he's funny. OK, that's his great secret weapon. Yeah, you know, and entertaining. Like, and sure. When, you know, in the debates, show. in the debates when he said, the world just got 10 feet taller. You know, like, you know, that was pretty good. Yeah, that was a pretty good Trump voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so he brought in these millions of people who aren't really, really are not that interested in policy and stuff. And they sort of follow politics more like wrestling or sports. And then that a lot of them got into QAnon. Uh, That's one theory of understanding it. The second one, I think is um there's almost a physical addiction thing going on, which is that with the amount of video podcast people are consuming, and I think this is just the nature of it. For instance, conspiracy theories. Okay. You start off with some JFK, you know, it's like drugs, you know, like that's good. I'm getting high on that. But like two years later. It's just not hitting like it used to. I need something more. I need some Rothschild. You know, give me some aliens. You know, it just gets more and more extreme. Uh, I think that's also part of what's going on. But the third macro theory about what's going on, I think this is the big one. And I think it really just explains everything of what's going on. It's this demographic stuff. Um, 
that uh, European Americans are be are going to become a minority in America, and this deep anxiety. It's not really discussed overtly, but I think it become it 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 becomes. Uh, I don't know if this is the right metaphor, but there's like a lot of shadow boxing where it's like, oh, we're fighting about um, DEI, but really at the core. It's what the burning ember is this anxiety about this uh, this demographic change. So I threw three macro theories to understand this political moment. What do you think? Uh, So um, I think, well, that there isn't going to be any one thing. Um, The the big one that you didn't mention that I blame a lot of stuff on is the Internet, uh, is the information revolution. And. Um, in many ways, it might. So just a couple of examples of things that that does, and I'll address the specific ones you brought up, but where um, you have uh, people can find their own sources of information and get validation for just about whatever they want. Uh, various fringy ideas or people that are into them um, can find other people who are like-minded and reinforce each other and uh, encourage each other more. And I think you can see this both with uh, more outspoken socialists and more uh, outspoken various kind of far right uh, white nationalists, uh, for example, um, that are you know more open about it. That used to be kind of drummed out of American polite society, and the internet helped bring it back. Um, it can help people with the entitled to their own facts, um, and also creates a degree of um, which I think you did mention, but I wouldn't say as much addiction, but uh, the distortion of information where it is uh, both very immediate that you constantly get it kind of in your face. But also, it is very hard for a human being to really internalize, even if they're thinking about it, especially if they're not. But even if they are, it's really hard for somebody to register. What I see on my social media feed is actually not typical. Uh, and you know, this might not be representative of the country or of politics right. or of the left or the right. If somebody is showing me, look at this horrible thing somebody on the left did, they're probably cherry picking that. That's not necessarily common behavior on the left. But then when people see this on their feed over and over and over again, they come to think, and this is quite natural, even if you're trying to resist it, come to think that, oh, that's what they are like, you know, and where, because that's what you see. So like in their hometown, they don't know anybody who identifies as a leftist. What do they see? Who are the leftists that they know? It's the ones that Tucker Carlson has chosen to highlight as the most ridiculous person he can find. Uh, or like the, uh, if you're familiar with the, the Twitter account, and I guess now brand lives of TikTok, lives of TikTok is yeah. an, another good example of this of uh, at absolute best, the most generous thing I could possibly interpret that as is uh, cherry picking or a great phrase uh uh, internet phrase, nut picking, you know, picking out the the craziest one uh, and trying to make that seem as if it is typical or if it is everybody. Um, and so uh, all of that, the internet can help uh, reinforce it. Um, on the, the demographic change, I think you're right that that's a significant part of it um, and that it manifests in all different ways, that there's uh, the racial one, which you mentioned, which were that uh, white people are a declining percentage of the population. Um, and there is a religious component with similar thing about Christians, especially religious Christians, um, and uh, those can work at cross purposes. So uh, if you notice where for a lot of this, the force is uh, Christianity, not so much as religion as identity politics. Otherwise, you would think that American Christians would be very enthusiastic about immigrants from Latin America because a lot of them are, are uh, religious Christians. I mean, more Catholic than Protestant, but still, you know, religious, they're believers and um, the and 
or you know tend to be uh but they're not because you know there's partially that kind of racial and cultural component um, so i think that the unsettling change is if anything more internet and media kind of information age technological uh technology driven than uh, demographic driven on its own, though the demographics play a significant role. The reason why I'm hesitant to give it uh, that much explanatory power is there's a big element that feels to me like, uh, you know, kids these days, uh, or you can find, and there are a couple of uh, clever writers who do this, of uh, you can find things like uh, newspaper op-eds lamenting about how like, oh, the decline of manliness or, uh, you know, uh, or uh, back in my day, people used to be like so polite and now they're not. Or um, the look at these new immigrants from whatever bringing their un-American values here. You can find that from 50 years ago, 100 years ago more. You know, you could find it about uh, uh, Jews and Irish and Italians uh, farther, how they were going to ruin American culture and weren't really American and needed to be kept out. And then uh, like every other group that comes to America, they uh, assimilate in some ways and they, you know, maybe contribute to and change the overall culture in other ways. And uh, the thing, at least to me, that makes America America and in part is special um, is that all those people are American, that, you know, that they can all be American, that that's kind of how you define it. So um, I do think there are a lot of those forces coming together. And I guess kind of the one that you other one that you didn't mention that um, I can't take credit for this, uh, but that uh, in part get from I said some uh, conservative writers like uh, uh, Ross uh, Douthat, for example, the New York Times, um, uses the phrase decadence, uh, or uh, Tom Nichols, who's a more of a never Trumper, uh, talks about it as kind of like boredom, or he doesn't really use this word, but ennui, uh, that you have a bunch of people whose lives are pretty darn good and that, but, you know, maybe not fantastic. Uh, and of course, no one doesn't have problems, um, but they're, I don't know, that's not exciting. It's kind of boring. Um, one of the best examples of this was uh, a lot of the January 6 attackers were pretty wealthy that a lot of people, you know, own businesses. And I mean, already who can afford to fly to DC in the middle of the week, you know, to kind of like go do some protests and uh, storm the Capitol, but uh, you know, not uh, so, but already you find that a lot of them are well above average in terms of things like economics. A lot of them were business owners, you know, maybe small business owners, uh, but successful ones and not you know, say giant conglomerates. And that part of the explanation for that um, is I think if you, oh, here you want to go, ready? Another sweeping explanation. This is sort of a hot take. So uh, don't take this as, you know, like really well thought out. But in terms of the demographic change, I think another big one is uh, the uh, generations. So sort of the boomer generation now heading on their way out. Um, the uh, millennials, especially younger millennials and Gen Z, much more multicultural, diverse, and, you know, uh, internet savvy uh, like that. And in the middle, we get Gen X and uh, Gen X. And I know I'm doing very generalized generational commentary here, but uh, you have this whole generation where it embraces apathy and not caring and like a detached irony as the highest values. And then suddenly finds themselves in like their 50s looking around and saying, you know, I thought that my life was going to be cooler than this. Like I thought, you know, I don't know, the movies or uh, whatever ver version and suddenly thinking, oh, oh no, 
I actually do care. Wait a minute, I care about some stuff. And uh, that the reason why you see such strong relative to other generations, Gen X support of Trump, I'm pretty sure I'd have to look again. But I think that he did better with Gen X than any other generation, meaning uh, slightly better than boomers or the remaining you know, oldest people that they call silent generation. Um, but that a big part of the appeal is the resentment of uh, kind of like what um, Marx referred to as the petite bourgeoisie of like the uh, people who are not actually working class, but who are resentful of the really rich and think of themselves, therefore, as kind of working class people struggling against the man. But these are in modern America, the sort of people who like take their personal boat out onto the lake to fly Trump flags. And, uh, you know, the average working class person does not own a boat. I, I want to sort of uh, I want to end on some bigger themes. So I'm just going to ask this now. So it's very dis. I, I I assume you're you're a politics junkie like I am, um, and so just on that level, I was excited that we were going to have you know some debates and uh, you know some kind of horse race. But uh, of late, I've just resigned myself to this is already over, and it's Trump and Biden. And are you are you how 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 over do are what what where would you peg Trump's chances of getting the GOP nomination? Is it above ninety or what do you think? Uh yeah, very high. I, I mean, I think you know, and I'm I'm not a political forecaster. You know, we talked earlier about how um, I didn't think you know you didn't think uh, a lot of people, but uh, didn't think that Trump was going to win in 2016. Um, and you know, I was pretty surprised by that. And I don't would say I'm really like a political prognosticator. Uh, but yeah, I think we're headed for Biden Trump too. That uh, the, you know, Biden, if he wants the nomination, he has it locked up of no incumbent president in modern America who has sought re-election has not gotten his party nomination. Some of them have faced small primary challenges, but uh, none of them didn't get the nomination. So I think he has announced his intention. So that one is basically a done deal. Uh, other than, I don't know, you know, like all the usual things, um, if he dies, I get, well, both Biden and Trump, they're, they're both old men. Uh, Trump in particular is out of shape. And so who knows, one of them might have a medical issue, I suppose, something like that, you know, or get struck by lightning or whatever, uh, could get out of the way, um, you know, or could make it where um, something else changes and someone else gets the nomination. But yeah, it really seems like we're headed for Biden Trump too. And uh, Trump seems to have the Republican nomination sewn up in that the uh, similar things as before, which is like you mentioned, the number of people who are not into politics, but are into Trump. And a lot of the Republican Party knows this, meaning that Republican leaders, they know that there are some of their voters who will turn out for Trump and won't turn out otherwise. Um, and the uh, other people who could potentially challenge him, you've got uh, DeSantis trying to challenge sort of from the right, I guess, or to try to challenge him as, uh, oh, uh, he's so great and we all got to support him and he's this poor victim and being persecuted, but don't vote for him, vote for me. You know, like that's more or less been his pitch. I mean, I'm caricaturing it there to uh, because I don't know why anybody ever thought that would work, but I guess maybe a better version of it, the way, you know, you might say it is uh, um, the, you know, similar agenda as Trump, but the one who can actually make it happen, actually bring it forward. But a lot of the Republican voters don't seem to care about that because as we discussed earlier, what they want is the show, not necessarily policy competence. Um, and 
the other candidates, so DeSantis is the biggest challenge, doesn't seem to have it. None of the other ones really seem to have it because they're not getting into the um, similar type of uh, cultural, uh, more more right-wing cultural and kind of, you know, also authoritarian curious uh, appeals. And the numbers, you know, are all pretty solid there. I don't really see something changing. But here, even worse, uh, or maybe worse isn't the right word, but I guess... Uh, an even stronger answer to your question is that even if somehow it is not Biden and Trump too, then Trump is still the dominant issue of American politics and will be as long as he's alive. So things like the part of the thing that has tripped up various Republican candidates is they've instead of being asked things like, oh, what policy proposal are you doing today? Or like, you know, what are you going to say when you go visit Iowa? Instead, questions are like, what do you think about Donald Trump getting indicted? And right. then they're in this position where they want to say something like, well, I'm running against him, so I kind of don't want him to win. But also, I think it's really unfair that he's being indicted. And I don't want to alienate his supporters by saying it's not unfair. And like, and threading this needle, which just shows that he is still the uh, dominant personality in the Republican Party. And I think in many ways, this uh, a microcosm or a personification is a better word for that, a personification of the main issue that has been roiling American politics, the sort of thing that got record voter turnout in 2020, which is that if people might not know all the details, they might not be, say, political junkies like you and me and uh, reading the news a lot or following it closely, they might not really pay much attention to it at all. I think most people know something's up, that, you know, know something's different, that there's a, a big question, and that even if they can't really articulate it, it's basically constitutional democracy, yes or no. And the uh, Trump with, especially with the court cases and running for president, is posing that question directly to the public, which is either vote for him, knowing that he'll become president, and uh, if he becomes president, that he will then use the power of the office to stifle any of the criminal investigations into him and into various people that he likes, and probably also manufacture investigations that um, are not really based in the law and fact, but against opponents. He's open about this. This isn't you know me trying to read into his mind. He argues this openly. Um, and the... Um, and so all Republican, you know, are going to be asked about that. Um, but then you have that on, on one hand, either Trump is uh, above the law or uh, he is not elected president and the criminal process keeps playing out and the various crimes that there's a lot of strong evidence that he did uh, play out in court. And we see something along the lines of what a whole lot of us are told as kids that no one's above the law. Or that's actually a, a Theodore Roosevelt quote, I think, is the, the version that people cite the most of a, no man is above the law, uh, or the classic John Adams line of, uh, we are a government of laws, not of men. Um, and that is what Trump is challenging directly, and what a lot of his supporters are challenging directly, and what he very much tried to do with his attempt to stay in power despite losing re-election that culminated in the violence of January 6th. And that is the question before the American people. And I think that most people at some level get it. And so that probably a Biden-Trump election is the most appropriate in that sense. Uh, in the, you know, like the line from The Dark Knight uh, with, you know, all due respect, I guess now that another Christopher Nolan movie is out, but of, um, you know, we're not getting the one we want, we're getting the one we deserve. So I think in a way, America does deserve Biden-Trump too, and we kind of need an answer. And hopefully, if it's Biden again, 
then we can say the question has been settled and maybe the Republican Party moves on. If it's Trump again, then who knows? But then, you know, clearly part of that argument will be continuing. Let's just take a second and talk about DeSantis. I mean, right now we're speaking in July, late July 2023. Um, we haven't even gotten to Iowa caucus, but the news is basically like DeSantis was a dud and he's doing a campaign reboot. His campaign appears to have accidentally uh, tweeted out a, a campaign ad with Nazi imagery. You know, it's interesting. I, I did think Trump was the heavy favorite, mostly for a lot of psychological reasons, because if you were invested in as a Trump voter, right, they would say, oh, the media, everybody's telling me I'm an idiot, I'm a racist. So they have a deep investment in Trump. And I think, to if they don't support him in the primary this time around, it's almost like admission that they were wrong. And also, they they want the story to have a happy ending. So, like, the triumphant ending of he came back and he was president again, rather than January 6th and he got indicted, right? So, I think, I, I thought Trump was the heavy favorite. But with DeSantis, I'm just curious to swap, like, what you think he did wrong or whatever. You know, for me, uh, I noticed that he's a... He's a Tea Party guy, you know, that he went into Congress as a Tea Party guy. So I think that's what he is underneath it all. Uh, he's this sort of, he's sort of that Paul Ryan Tea Party guy with this new anti-woke thing. And so I, I remember thinking if he does not, and actually I know some GOP political consultants from my childhood. Anyways, I told one of them, I said, if he doesn't completely abandon those social security privatization cut votes, he's done. And the guy was like, oh, no one cares about that. But I think, you know, he, he, he doesn't smile. He's not funny. That's a big thing. But also, if you look at him, the absence of economic populism from him is 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 sort of striking. He does not talk about the Rust Belt. He does not talk about. He's anti-tariff. I think he, he, there is. It's just the culture war BS, you know. But uh, what what are your thoughts on that? So I think that's mostly right. Um, I've been in the camp, and this is again in like political prognostication, which uh, you know. I don't know, and uh, it's also not my area of expertise. So I'm saying this more as you know, like a political junkie kind of political fan. Um, but the I've thought he sucked the whole time. And there's a, a tweet of mine that you can find of as soon as the rumblings about him were starting in uh, like even January or February 2021. So right after Biden takes office. Um, and uh, I wrote something comparing DeSantis to Scott Walker 2016 in that uh, both, and I'm not the only person who's made this comparison, um, but uh, where Walker was the governor of Wisconsin, uh, he Republican governor, he did something showily where he took on a part, a constituency of the left in a way that uh, Fox News and other conservative media loved and really jumped on. And he made a lot of hay out of it. And that was his big thing. And he, he was thought of in the, the early front runner, a really good chance for the nomination. And he didn't have it. He totally flopped. He didn't even make it to Iowa. And uh, I saw a lot of that in DeSantis, of where similarly, the DeSantis, the anti-woke stuff, or I think the big one with him at first was uh, just being really cruel to immigrants, you know, or to people 
Venezuelans flee communism and come to the United States seeking uh, seeking asylum. And DeSantis's idea is to be publicly really cruel to them, to trick them and send them to a place where nobody's ready for them and where they don't know where they are. Uh, and to make a point, make sure that the Fox News cameras are there when he does it. So this is the the pitch that he's doing. And look at me, I fight the left on the cultural stuff. And that's sort of what he was doing. I mean, that was a lot of what he has of where, um, you know, I don't really purport to know, say, whether he's really into the Tea Party stuff or whether that was also him kind of maybe going with the wind of the party. Uh, but I do think it is very difficult for a human being to constantly argue something in public without at least partially believing it themselves and you know to be just like totally playing a character and so i think desantis really does hate a lot of the woke stuff really does have uh you know seriously negative opinions of trans people or maybe gay people more broadly but especially trans people um and that he is and especially a lot of his staff is exactly the new right that I wrote about in that article about the people who believe that the left controls everything. And the fact that the governor of Florida is cracking down on it is refuting of their argument that the left controls everything. And yet, you know, they still make it. Um, but that DeSantis seems genuinely into that stuff. I'd say so does, for example, Elon Musk and where the uh, two of them have synergy on it. You know, why DeSantis announced his candidacy on Twitter in a way that was also had a bunch of weird technical issues uh, is because he and his campaign have pretty much the whole time been of, by, and for the very online new right, the culture war right. And the ad that um, you know you're, that you mentioned of where it shows that somebody created an image of a, a Sonnenrad, the um, kind of like a, a Nazi a symbol, a star symbol, and you can see this in other places too. Um, some of the people in the uh, Azov Battalion in uh, Ukraine uh, have a similar looking symbol. So that alone, you know, you can say maybe I don't know, but the image that they created in this ad was of that symbol superimposed over the flag of Florida with a bunch of shock troops, you know, like figures with rifles marching towards a picture of DeSantis that was then superimposed over the Sonnenrad and the uh, the flag of Florida. So that is not subtle. Like, I don't know what word would fit that better than fascist in terms of imagery. And they shared that. I think then maybe they realized, oh, no. But they had also done this weirdly kind of homoerotic slash homophobic ad in which it was about how how Trump is too nice to gay people and DeSantis really cracks down on them and did this with a bunch of imagery that I, being very online, recognized of things like the Giga Chad, which is so stupid when you say it out loud, but which, do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, yes, of course. The, right. So like, yeah, and, and anybody model. who is similarly internet brain poisoned like we are, you know, would recognize memes like this. But you got like... Ron DeSantis is good because he cracks out on the gays. Look at him. He's like these buff shirtless dudes. And it's that is just very strange. Like the, um, do you people not understand how weird this is to everyone who doesn't know all your references and have all your cultural bugaboos? Um, and that's me being polite about it. So I, I think that really is his candidacy and that basically he has never had it. And that what he really is, um, the DeSantis for president is primarily a media creation or like media and activist creation. So I wrote something for the Bulwark about how uh, the anti-anti-Trumpers, um, or at least the ones that stuck with the Republican Party, uh, well, I guess anybody to be anti-anti-Trump means you stuck with Republicans just without supporting him. So anti-anti, uh, for anybody not familiar, would be the sort of person who says something like, uh, who always makes arguments of, 
oh, well, well, I don't support Trump, but the Democrats are being totally unreasonable when they criticize him about this and will constantly profess about how much they don't support Trump and yet always argue where not necessarily in favor of him, but always against his enemies that always focus on against his enemies. So anti-anti um, and uh, that they badly need Ron DeSantis to happen. And they did a lot of boosting Fox News, even for a period of time, uh, did a lot to boost DeSantis and kept Trump off the air. So uh, the whole Rupert Murdoch media organization, I mean, New York Post and uh, Wall Street Journal's in there too, you know, and others um, made a, a real push to get uh, DeSantis to be the guy. And only when it didn't work did they shift back towards just recently did uh, Fox start uh, covering Trump a bunch more and um, bring him on again, I think it was the first time in a while. Um, and because of DeSantis flopping so that what we saw was... Uh, if anything, it's a reverse of what a lot of people think, which was that, or at least a lot of, say, DeSantis fans doing the typical grievance thing again, say that, oh, it was the media that did this to him. The media was so unfair, as if, you know, Republican primary voters vote based on, like, what the New York Times or CNN says. Um, and yeah, he, oh, Sorry, yeah, go ahead. He, he just picked the wrong issues. Like, I, I was shocked he didn't go after Trump. Like, you didn't finish the wall. Like... <laughs> Instead, he's like, I want to beat up Fauci, and Trump isn't anti-vaccine enough. I, I think he just he he didn't. Uh, I think his his instincts were not as good as people thought. Um, yeah, I, I think they were never good. But if I would give a, a specific answer, and maybe good for Florida or for Florida, right. you know, so clearly he won two terms right. as governor. He doesn't have zero right. political skills. Um, good for Florida, but the what you're describing. Um, I think boils down to the campaign just being way too online right, uh, right, right. of these amplified, uh, what you want to call them, alt writer, online writer, new write, or whatever. But these very culture were very aggrieved and also in an information bubble and very convinced because they constantly tell each other this, that everybody agrees with them. Yeah. You know, so, for example, something like, oh, uh, everybody hates DEI and ESG, which uh, environmental social governing investing. It's like a maybe, you know, tech industry VCs don't like people saying you shouldn't be more responsible with your investment. Right. Um, and he's complaining or like, and CRT was another oh, one. CB, and, CBDC. I don't know, what's, what's that? The I don't central even bank digital oh, currency. Yes. They talk about that. I'm like, you realize no one knows what you're talking about. Right? And, and he still <laughs> does this with these acronyms as if everybody knows what he's talking about. And everybody agrees that those are the biggest issues facing the country, except for, you know, those few radical leftists that took over everything and then force their opinions on all the majority of people that really don't like it, but because they control all our institutions, they forced everybody to think this. And of course, that isn't true. It is nuts. And yet, that seems to be the animating idea of the DeSantis campaign. Yeah. They seem to be genuinely surprised that not just are their ideas not landing with most Americans, but not even with most Republicans. And that's because this group online, uh, that's too online, constantly tells itself that, uh, you know, th they're victim. we're victims and everybody agrees with us, except for those few leftists that took over everything. Uh, the thing I think that the conventional wisdom is getting wrong, and I try to correct for, is you talk about generation. And my big theory is people do not understand how much more extreme the Gen Z right is than the millennials, the boomers. And people don't, and, and, and it's it, partially because we don't have good polling on it, which is another topic. How large this sort of 
Nick Fuentes, Roy Bernazzi, contingent of not all the Republicans of the Gen Z, but of the most politically active. So like the, the Gen Z uh, congressional staffers. If people knew how many of the Gen Z Republican congressional staffers were like devoted part, like supporters of what I believe is basically a pro-Hitler cult, they would be really alarmed, but they don't get it. They don't see it for good reason. Why would you want to look at all the, these terrible Nazi people? But that's my big thing. Now, please tell me, am I alarmist? Am I, what, what's your sense on this? So I'm, I'm going to give you a mixed answer, which is I think you're both right and alarmist. Uh, and the the reason why, so I think you are right about this group of people and that we have for a lot of this podcast and in part of my article and, you know, the DeSantis team, and we're talking about the same crowd of, you know, different manifestations of it, perhaps, and some people have feed in multiple areas, you know, but the Venn diagram overlaps a lot. That's the kind of universe of people that we're talking about. Um, and so I think you're right, say, with the Gen Zers, although also... Uh, it looks like Gen Z might be the least conservative generation ever, or least on social issues. Uh, the So in part, the reason why you're seeing this such uh, almost like over-the-top reaction and, um, you know, things like when you say, like, you know, the Hitler thing, I mean, stuff like uh, I remember Nick Fuentes saying to a crowd about, you know, these people said something, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, and they said, uh, like, Hitler said that, like, that would be a bad thing. And then the crowd cheers, you know, and so they're into it and there's the problem of uh where some of them are maybe into it because they're really into it and some of them are into it because they just kind of think it's edgy and some of them you know are counterculture or something or you know bothers some people and some of them are into it because they just really don't like the left and you know like trying to stick it to them and you know or own libs or what have you and the difference between these yeah, it's really blurry, including for the people involved, where I don't even know if they know, say, necessarily where on that spectrum they fall. Uh, the part where I'd give sort of where I say the, the alarmist thing um, is that there aren't that many of them. And there is something I my hopeful version of the legacy of the DeSantis campaign is that it shows Republicans that going that much kind of culture war crazy and that statist about, you know, wanting to use state power to do things like crack down on free speech and free enterprise. Uh, Republicans, yes, Republicans, crack down on free enterprise. Um, and that that is actually a big loser. You know, so it's not a case of, okay, maybe it's kind of immoral and maybe it's kind of un-American, but you know, it does get you elected. It gets you power. And we want power, don't we? You know, we, you want to win office, don't you? So that makes it then, then a force when forces reach that level, um, and I'd say a decent amount of kind of Trump's uh, anti-democratic elements, meaning small d uh, anti-democracy of you know things like uh, the we should throw out a whole bunch of votes in Georgia, or or the people the officials in Georgia should just make up eleven thousand votes and give them to me. You know those sort of blatantly anti-democratic things that uh, more people I don't know maybe open to it or dabble into it a little. But sorry, I got a cough. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but that a legacy of the DeSantis campaign uh, will be that actually that's not electorally appealing. It can't even get you a lot of Republican primary votes, let alone, you know, get you a general election win. Um, and so I am, say, hopeful about that. Uh, 
and who knows in terms of other generational change. So it is, I find it very hard to predict past the next election because um, I do think without exaggeration that if Trump becomes president again, that uh, US constitutional democracy is in very serious trouble. Um, that the idea of, we already saw him try to overthrow the constitution and stay in power after losing re-election. The idea that he would then voluntarily leave uh, at the end of four years um, you know, is uh, when he's term limited, or I guess even if he somehow ran, whatever, that all sorts of different problems. Whereas I don't know exactly what would happen if, um, you know, say with, with Biden or what would happen with Trumpist forces or MAGA forces or the right in general, if uh, Trump loses again. But I do think that ultimately the only way out of this is Republicans running with Trump have to see enough electoral setbacks that the people who are self-interested and want power and want to see their policies enacted, um, that they start, uh, an, a critical mass of them start saying, this guy is a loser. If we go with him, we're just going to lose. The left is going to win. Get him out of here. And now there's a little rumblings on the fringes, but clearly that's not the main, or, you know, especially say from more establishment figures, maybe, but that's not the main energy in the party. And most of those establishment figures, because they know that's not the main energy, kind of duck it whenever it comes up. Um, uh, let, and, let me, let me mm -hmm. ask you this. And there's no, I, I, this is just a guess. We take all of the Gen Z congressional staffers, let's say it's 200, okay? And uh, we give them the drug where people have to tell the truth or whatever. And and uh, that, if, that, that's if, Hollywood, by the way, just to be clear. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, you might very well know this. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. Because I, I oh, teach yeah, national yeah, security yeah. stuff, right? The, yeah, yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. that there's like true sodium oh, methanol, yeah, yeah. um, yeah. I mean, I'm only slightly exaggerating here. Yeah, it would yeah, be yeah. like how, you know, if you yeah. got somebody drunk, and then also gave them a bunch of like Adderall right. and then asked them questions, right. they would probably blab a bunch of stuff that they wouldn't right. otherwise. Right. But hypothetically, if it did exist, and you took that, those 200 Gen Z Republican congressional staffers, do you think there are more diehard, not diehard, do you think there are more fervent fans of Ronald Reagan or Adolf Hitler in that group? I think merely the fact that I'm hesitating kind of gives you the answer, uh, but, which is really insane. Like if you were going to, I thought you were going to make this easier and say like Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump, for example, or Ronald Reagan <laughs> or Ron DeSantis, and then I was clearly going to go not Reagan. Um, but I don't know. And I, I'm so hesitant to say, right. you know, actually support Hitler, especially as opposed to a um, kind of maybe like some things Hitler did or want to move in a more Hitlery direction, but not, um, you know, I don't think that these people are genocidal maniacs, at least not most of them, um, probably not. But well, uh, so I, I know I'm sort of ducking the uh, question or, or dodging I'll, it a I'll bit. I'll just oh. say this. I heard from somebody, and this like keeps me up at night. I heard from somebody in DC. They said that Gen Z Republican congressional staffers, he said about half of them are like Nick Fuentes fans. And, and to me, I don't know if you saw his recent speech. He did it in Florida, but he had a video of bullets behind him and he said we will make them die in the holy war so now he's he's progressed to just calling for murder of jews mm -hmm. um, um yeah so there, there's a lot of the the holy war language stuff and this also plays into that you know aggrieved new right um and i think a lot of those staffers go with it i think i'll so i'll partially answer it i am 
I'm pretty confident that not many of them admire Reagan, especially not admire a lot of the things that Raymond uh, that Reagan stood for, such as you know his famous uh, like "City on the Hill" speech and how we should have more immigrants to America and how great that is. You know, that's clearly something that uh, today's right really hates. Of um, the he was really harsh on Russia. Uh, a lot of these staffers seem to be. Uh, at least anti-anti, if not outright supportive of Putin's Russia and its war on Ukraine, um, and uh, in part because of uh, crackdowns on gay people uh, within Russia, and also similarly somewhat uh, with Hungary, um, that, you know, not making war on Ukraine, but in terms of uh, domestic crackdown, kind of government doing culture war. Um, so, yeah, I think they're they're clearly all into that. Um, the or, so, A large subset of the congressional Republican congressional staffers think we can conclude are into it. Uh, but a lot power is often a numbers game. Um, so one, when you talk about something like, uh, and I do not want to downplay concerns about some guy with a large following constantly talking about, you know, mass murder and doing it where he's doing the like internet style kind of joking, not joking, uh, style, you know, we'll like, we'll maybe smile about it or laugh about it, but also clearly means it, um, at least to a decent extent, uh, that, there's only so much kind of organization and real world violence and stuff they can muster. So if you spend a bunch of time on the internet, you will in, in political and you know cultural arguments, you'll inevitably see various things like death threats or you know claims of the civil war or other stuff like that. And while that is serious, and I think it could, I'm actively concerned about that inspiring individuals of people like uh, there was the guy that went to an FBI headquarters in, I think it was in Ohio after, uh, mm. um, there's a couple months ago and, right. you know, uh, try and with a rifle and tried to raid the place and, um, ended up being, you know, an idiot of trying to shoot his way through bulletproof glass and then running away. Um, but went there to go kill people. And, you know, like those sort of, uh, individuals that, um, in, uh, when it comes to terrorism, we'd call them kind of self-starters, not really lone wolves because they're part of this larger movement, but not like part of a terrorist organization or anything like that, or part of a militia, like say the Oath Keepers, um, or, uh, the three percenters or, you know, those types that, uh, the, there's, could be that individual violence, but that these guys don't have anywhere near the, institutional power, the authority to execute anything like the mass murderous plans that they have. Of, I'm thinking back to something I wrote shortly after Trump got reelected, which was called Why America Won't Go Fascist. And um, I reread that recently, and I think it holds up pretty well, but is that the um, issues in like 1920s, 1930s Germany were so much worse. And so there was the terrible uh, burdens of having uh, World War One blamed on them and all the death that World War One had caused and all the economic devastation of the Depression. And there was, uh, you know, mass unemployment and um, something like, I think, uh, almost half of young men having, you know, out of work and can't get jobs. And right. um, the and we don't have anything like that. And so the pool that Hitler had to draw upon, or for that matter, somebody like Mussolini had to draw upon, was so much larger than what there is in the United States today. That I guess the big death downside of the internet uh, with a lot of this politics is it helps people like this find each other and find a following and grow bigger. And it means that somebody like me, you know, professor at a political science department at university knows who Nick Fuentes is um, and uh, that, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it plays that additional role, but it also means that it's amplifying people who are at least some of them all talk and well, I, who I, kind of get their jollies out by doing this online without actually doing it. I, I hope you're I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're right. I one just small question. 
And then I want to get to the big sort of final thing, which is, I think we're around the similar ages, but compared, let's use a one to, just talk about anti-Semitism, let's use a one, a one to a hundred scale. Okay, and we said anti-Semitism in America in 2006, let's say it was um, a 24, okay? Okay. What would you put that number at today? Um, maybe I'll double it. Forty-eight. Okay. Uh, I I've been asking a, a few different guests that, so I'm I'm just curious because, um, well, where yeah. did others end up? Uh, well, this guy Spencer Sunshine is a real expert. He I think he said it was about three times as worse in his opinion. Uh, Jonathan Sarna, the professor at Brandeis, he I think he just said it's much worse, but. Um, yeah, so that all sounds similar to me. I mean, yeah, who knows the difference yeah. between twice as worse and yeah. three times as worse. Um, uh, I think it's safe to say worse and yeah. uh, open in some ways. And of course, one of the issues of um, you know Jews in America, especially with uh, say 21st century cultural war politics, of are kind of you know white people whenever the uh, left is mad. Uh, especially if they're mad at Israel, for example, um, and are non-white whenever the alt-right is mad. And, you know, so it's things like, I, I remember with the, the Charlottesville marchers chanting, Jews shall not replace us. And I was thinking, it's like, I, they're clearly talking about me, <laughs> you know, like the, uh, like me or people like me, they're, they're saying like, you know, we white people are being overrun by the Jews. Like there's, you know, some element to that. Um, and, so yeah, it's a more open, and also it's wrapped up in a, a degree of sort of philo-Semitism or kind of the um, evangelical, and Trump played into this also, uh, idea of Israel as this kind of symbol of either the end of days or of the bulwark against Islam or whatever version they put into their heads of it, but that a lot of that support. Anyway, so where it gets gets all mishmashed, but yes, I'd say anti-Semitism higher to a concerning degree, but hard to ballpark. Yeah. You know, today, Israel, they finally passed at least the first part of this big controversial judicial reform. I've seen, and many people have talked about, there's been a real sea change on American Jewish attitudes towards it's Israel. I think, like, the way I would illustrate the changes, for instance, if you just look at, like, sort of left-wing writers under the age of 40, I... It, it is sort of hard to find any that are willing to say anything anything good about Israel. How anti-Israel do you think the the under forty left is in in the sense of do you think they want just an end to the settlements or do you do you think they like literally see it as like apartheid South Africa like needs to be dismantled? Do you have any sense? Uh. I mean, not great in terms of numbers, and I think it depends on, you know, as you move further left, this gets more and more, but probably the latter. That the 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 data and just also my sense of it, um, but pretty well backed up by public opinion data, is that over the course of the last couple decades, uh, maybe 30 years, but uh, definitely this century, um, Israel has gone from a bipartisan consensus in the United States, obviously not every individual, but where both parties strongly supportive, to a partisan issue where it's basically uh, Republicans back the conservative Israeli government and Democrats and the left more broadly oppose it. Um, and the that is a lot more pronounced when it comes to younger people. 
And I think that broadly when it comes to young Americans, especially young uh, Americans on the left that are Democrats and progressives, anything like that, which is the majority of Jewish Americans in general, and especially of younger ones, I think it's approximately about uh, 75% or so of American Jews tend to, that vote, vote Democratic, um, and uh, even more so with young people, and that the Israeli government over the course of the last you know, few decades has essentially lost all those people that they, um, you know, or lost most of them, that they've made many decisions that they didn't have to make in the current uh, attempted judicial, uh, I don't even really want to call it like reform or change, but uh, upheaval of uh, to remove a check on the Netanyahu government is essentially what it is, and to allow greater imposition of things like religious policy and possibly annexation uh, plans of uh, the West Bank and, you know, other parts of that, but that they have lost people based on, and, you know, the continuing settlements are a very big part of it, um, but that the sympathy that they had from so much of America in the 20th century was in significant part uh, based on the fact that they were kind of the underdog or at least outnumbered and surrounded, and they have increasingly been behaving as they have uh, made peace with Egypt and peace with Jordan, and so have less, um, you know, interstate uh, problems, and now have uh, agreements with not, I don't know, quite peace, but you know, with the UAE and with Bahrain and um, in the Abraham Accords, that you know, it's more normalized relations, and they kind of get along with the Saudis because both of them are more afraid of Iran and uh, the, um, and to some extent also jihadists, you know, ISIS and what have you, um, but they're. I don't know, they lost it. It's kind of the, the best way I can think of it. That um, I think they, instead of listening to some of the warnings and taking it seriously, that a lot of people are starting to think this looks like apartheid South Africa yeah. and you're losing the next generation. And instead, the reaction to that was, you can't tell us what to do. Go to hell. We're doing this. It's really obnoxious of you to, you know, sort of like tell us not. And uh, shut up. And that then um, when, if I were to mark a point on it, it was when uh, Obama was president and Netanyahu was invited by the Republican Congress, by the House, um, Republican House Caucus, to give a speech denouncing the Iran nuclear deal that Obama was working on and going to sign. And they did this with going around uh, the White House. So typically, you clear any foreign visit with the White House because the president has way more foreign policy responsibilities than Congress does. Um, and so usually at least, you know, talk to them or clear it. And never before had any Israeli leader come to the United States and said effectively, the president of this party is wrong. The leaders, the congressional yeah. leaders of the opposition party are right. Um, what they always had gone with, you know, was support of general of America and recognizing how the American patronage, everything from military aid to votes at the UN um, is beneficial to them and is a, a key part of their national security strategy. And they made a decision that they didn't care. And I think you can maybe here in the way I'm saying of that, this has also been in part a process for me that I, I've i reacted in part by paying less attention to it uh, and uh, mostly because they lost me. And it's I, I don't see, a, it's not that I have a good alternative that I would rather see. Um, I get hesitant, reason why I get hesitant about what do you want the final you know solution? Uh, oh, that's a terrible term to use in this context. Um, what do you want the um, final, the scenario, you know, at the end, what do you envision as like the end state, the positive end state of this? And the part of the thing that made me get so disillusioned with it, um, meaning with the whole conflict and that it you know, could possibly be resolved, um, is that 
a lot of people can envision ideal end states. Oh, I would like it to look like this, but nobody has the foggiest idea how to get there. And so they end up using the, oh no, this is the end state that we're going for. A lot of times I think it's effectively an excuse to not deal with any of the current issues on the ground. So if you allow me to do an analogy, I'd say a, a sim I have a similar problem with a lot of commentary about the Ukraine war in that the, uh, a lot of the, the outside commentary, Western commentary, they say like, you know, we need peace. And uh, here, I have an idea for peace. Russia gets this and Ukraine gets that. It's like, well, maybe that's fair in your head. But if you can't convince both the Russians and the Ukrainians that that's better than fighting more and trying to get better, then it's a totally worthless thing as a peace plan. And so you're not actually doing a peace plan. You are just envisioning an end state and then saying, look at me, I support peace and I feel better now. And that's not doing any of the hard work of it. And so I have no real idea of what actual change that is plausible could happen that would make the uh, Israeli-Palestinian situation look better. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it just seems totally screwed to me. Yeah. And I think yeah. that the Israelis have, uh, in part, maybe, and maybe they're right about this, that essentially the Republican Party and the American right is the one that's going to support them as their project becomes increasingly ethno-nationalist and that the Democratic Party already has and will continue to turn on them. And they're probably right, though it's uh, to a significant extent their fault. Just my two cents. I think, and I understand Israelis will say we have, they'll say often, we have no one to negotiate with. But I think allowing the dream or whatever, the concept of the two-state solution to basically die on the vine, which is what has been happening for the past like 10 years, where it's like no one's even talking about it as like a real thing i think they didn't realize the big effects that would have that, that would be bad for their perception because people are like well if there's no two-state solution on the on the table then well what are we supposed to do and so i think a lot of people are like well i guess this bds thing is like the only thing i can do to after I hear, and I've heard the stories myself from um, activists in Israel when they're touring America about the settler violence against Palestinians trying to like harvest their olives. And, and, and so people hear that, they don't see any two-state solution. And so you see a lot of more people going towards BDS, but that's just my two cents. But I, I think that's likely. And uh, I... I have a very mixed opinion uh, of the no one to negotiate argument or no one to negotiate with uh, argument, because um, on one hand, I'm pretty sympathetic to it in that the uh, one of the reasons why when he was alive, a Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat, um, ended up rejecting some offers uh, was because I think the most likely reason when you look into it uh, is not because he didn't think it would perhaps be better for the Palestinian people, but because he thought he couldn't deliver it, that he did not have support to sacrifice some things and get other things back. And so if even he couldn't negotiate it, and uh, currently uh, Mahmoud Abbas is not somebody, I think, who has the constituency to really deliver on any of these agreements, especially not if Hamas is not at the table. And so I'm sympathetic to that. The part where I lose sympathy um, for that argument is when, okay, so if you don't have a negotiating partner now, you should be working really hard to set up a negotiating partner in the future. Maybe it'll take a whole generation, a generational turnover, but uh, set that up. Try to create, do what you can do to help build up a potential 
you know, or get out of the way if you have to, whatever it is that you have to do, try to work to build up a potential yeah. negotiating partner. And yeah, what they have done is almost the exact opposite right. that uh, by they're just weakening the, they weaken the Palestinian position and uh, they, uh, take anyone who you know that they weaken the various palestinian leaders and they undermine them and they make it where uh at least a decent part of the israeli right seems quite happy having the excuse of we have nobody to negotiate with and don't yeah. work more long term for it yeah. so i i am my sympathy for that argument is limited because of the filibuster uh is there just no prospect that we're going to get universal health care like I'm not saying ever, but like in the next like 15 years. I don't think the filibuster is the only reason, but I would be very surprised by universal health care in the United States in the foreseeable future. It's, it's, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Uh, you know, actually, I can give you a really short answer for that because yeah. uh, it happens that I was a uh, healthcare consultant before I went to grad school. Um, and, you know, like a business job. I mean, not something that connects to my current job, but where I got to see a decent amount of this from the inside. Uh, and the the thing with universal health care is um you'd have to get something like a hundred million people to give up employer health insurance which most of them kind of like i mean they complain about it a lot but they're all pretty satisfied by it so the pitch and this is like what bernie sanders was making for example the pitch is not hey everybody would you like a really great healthcare system it's hey everybody would you give up the health care that you have for my promise that i can maybe get you a better one and that makes a, you know, a lot of people, so uh, things like fear of change or the tying of healthcare to employment for so many people that you've got this whole, you're not trying to build a system from scratch. You have to somehow change the current system towards that. And I think the institutional barriers to that are too great. That a uh, short version of this is the Obama team was very smart to try to expand health insurance coverage by using kind of market forces and existing systems rather than to try to scrap the whole thing and start from scratch, because if they tried that, they would have gotten nothing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, this is the most complex subject and PBMs and middlemen and all this stuff. All I know is that I think eventually the message of like, if you get stomach cancer, you shouldn't go bankrupt and lose your house. I think that will win eventually. It's just, <laughs> or like, you know, it shouldn't cost what is it, like five thousand, ten thousand dollars to ha ha give birth or whatever. You know, I, eventually, I think that will. Work. But my yeah, final... I mean, quite possibly, it it just might win in the form of things like more government subsidies. You know, right, as opposed right. to universal healthcare. Right. Where do you identify on the political spectrum? I don't really know. So, like, I go through this a lot, and I, I mean. It feels like I'm, I'm whipping out when I say that. Because I, I think about this a decent amount. I, I, I know. No, I understand. I don't know. Uh, if I had to pick a term, moderate. And I don't really like centrist. I think that centrist tries to place themselves between two sides. And um, a lot of it also kind of depends on issues. Right. Uh, I like the never Trump conservatives. I'm pretty hawkish on foreign policy. Not like to neoconservative, you know, like I was against the Iraq war. Uh, but um, the, you know, fairly hawkish, um, pretty pro-market. Um, I'm uh, also, uh, you know, I think individual freedom uh, matters a lot to me, get kind of libertarian, but I also think of that in terms of things like abortion rights, you know, very much factor into that, uh, live and let live, let people do their thing. Um, 
you know, so I don't know, there's the, this, I believe very strongly in constitutional democracy, rule of law. Um, I don't know if this is on the spectrum of, you know, politics, let's say, but I'd call so myself institutionalist. you're neoliberal scum. No, I'm joking. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think, it, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's unreasonable. So I'm I would say joking. at least in some ways, at least in some ways, sure, that the, if, if a leftist said, and called me neoliberal, that would be accurate. I would say like, okay, maybe like fair. If they called me, say, conservative, I would say, I don't think so. Maybe I'm conservative on some things, you know, and give the whole little spiel ne again. But neoliberal um, is done as a term because now Charlie Kirk is using it. Anyway, so here. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Okay. So, so now if it just means just like thing I don't like, if, if it's down oh, to that, then for, and you know what? It kind of did already that, you know, it's just like thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe more from the left, but the amount of times I've seen neoliberal thrown around at things yeah. that, oh, actually, uh, it could give you a really great example of this. When people use the neoliberal neocon something, it's like, you know, those people disagree. Like they kind of hate each other. The, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. for example, the neoliberals said, we need to do a lot of free trade with China. That'll help make it more democratic. And the uh, neocon said, we need to adamantly oppose China. Why are you giving China the means to compete against us? And like, right. they really disagree on big things. Right. So you can see the, oh, you neoliberal neocon is an example of person I don't like. So we're always going to have a, a, a left and a right. What does a healthy right look like? Yeah, you know, that one I think is a very tough question because uh, we are in an age of a lot of change and pretty rapid change. And that is very unlikely to decrease. And if anything, we'll continue accelerating. And this is because of uh, the internet and smartphones and globalization and global travel and you know ease of travel and um, especially said so, you know internet global communications. Um, but uh, where and then add on to all of that climate change with which is going to be a stressor in all sorts of places and in different ways and. Uh, those will all be rapid changes, you know, something, I mean, even something as simple as like, this is where, this is where my farm was and I got it from my father and he got it from his father. And now there's just no rain and we have to leave. Like, you know, that's an example of where, so change will happen and people can't do anything about it or like they have to respond to it. They can't stop it. Um, and some people will rage against it again. So that, I don't know a good answer necessarily of how to channel it. And in part, that might be something that is while there are wrinkles to it that are particular to this political era, that's something that humanity has dealt with forever. The you know change, and as people get older, maybe they don't like change, and the young people want change. And you think of, you know, I make the kids these days type of uh, joke, but you know, or like the I don't know, kids these days with their genders and their pronouns sounds a lot to me. Like you know, kids these days with their hip hop and their video games, but for kids these days with their rock and roll and their long hair, and you know, so there's an element of uh, that will just always, as people age, they get, you know, maybe more comfortable in their ways and less interested in changing. And I mean, I, I felt that, you know, or get certain, in certain ways you could say lazier, uh, uh, or maybe comfortable or what have you as you get older. Um, on terms of healthy, right. Uh, there's one really big one, which is that, and I don't know totally how to bring this about, but, um, I just want them to be supportive of constitutional democracy again. Uh, and I can even hear like the tone of my voice. It almost sounds like pleading because I never thought I would find myself in a situation of asking that about uh, so many people in my country and a whole political party and political movement. Um, but really basic things like the winners of elections are the ones who should take office. 
when you lose a court case, you know, you can challenge elections in court, but then you accept the rulings of the court. Uh, the reality is real. Uh, the U.S. Constitution is good, and we should follow it, even if sometimes it's frustrating. And these are things that the Trumpist right has abandoned. And where, when you mentioned, you know, Reagan was something that uh, even even stuff like lip, lip service to, or a great example, I just saw this old George W. Bush speech, and uh, I didn't vote for Bush. I was not a, a big fan of him, although I do think his second term is, is decent. His first time I do not like um, but well, maybe a couple moments. But anyway, I'm also living through, and I don't need to re-adjudicate Bush. But he um, saw. I saw the speech recently that he gave, and I think it was 2005, uh, in which he talked about how uh, slavery and its legacy are a stain that this country still hasn't wiped away, and uh, we and the idea of tea, and we should be treating the uh, slaves as if they are founders like people talk about you know thomas jefferson and ben franklin and, and john adams well you know what there were also these people that helped found the country who towed the fields and who built it and who were forced to do it and i'm paraphrasing it somewhat but it really was along those lines and it was so striking to read that today compared to like ron DeSantis throwing a fit about crt um or you know, some, uh, I remember with the Glenn Youngkin Virginia campaign, there was a, a mom in Virginia who was so upset that her high school aged son was assigned the book Beloved by Toni Morrison, you know, because it has stuff about slavery in it. And, um, oh, to be that, could you imagine being that kid of like your nationally famous mom saying you can't handle a book? Um, and, uh, but, but any of that stuff that where it's, um, it's just so ridiculous to think of people saying that that sort of things that Bush was saying, you know, racism, bad legacy of slavery still with us, like the as opposed to saying racism, that is just a word the left uses to attack the right um, that uh, so it seems silly to say go back to that. And there are definitely parts of the Bush presidency I would not want to go back to. Um, but I don't need people to agree with me. I expect a lot of disagreement. I just want the disagreement to be about things like, you know, policy issues of you brought up immigration as a good right. example there's a lot of discussion there i think even you know something like abortion uh as much as that really impacts people's lives uh is you know something that you can see the policy positions make coherent sense largely you know taxes higher or lower spend more in the military or not uh the regulate in this way or don't the type of policy discussions as opposed to what uh, politics has gone now almost like to a, a higher level of or maybe lower level depending how you think about it but like a more meta level of how i framed it earlier of constitutional democracy yes or no uh should we treat facts as facts or are facts just sort of something you can make up or discard whenever you think is convenient um, that we're having these core issues like is, is truth true and does true matter and those issues need to settle before just, just i think to, we have the policy one just to, i push back on that a little bit it's funny i'm like less alarmist on this democracy thing because don't you think that's a lot just unique to this weird trump guy like he lost his ego, you know, his father issues. He can never admit to losing. So they did this ridiculous stuff. I don't really see that. I don't see when Trump is gone, if he died of a heart attack, I don't think the next Republican nominee is going to try that again. If he, um, if he lost, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the, there are a number of ways in which uh, the best example of this is probably DeSantis in Florida, in which he has 
directly violated the law and violated the constitution to do some of his culture war crackdowns. And even, I mean, you've got things like Republican nominated judges saying things like this turns the first amendment upside down and, you know, in slapping him down and is still doing it even despite losing in court and, you know, knowing that it'll hurt people. Um, and that, you know, even, so if you, uh, yeah, that people will react to it or be afraid of it, even if you end up losing in court later. Oh, I, um, I agree and, with you. You know, so possibly that, but I liberal. They are moving in the illiberal. Oh, yeah. So okay, I'd I'd blur the two of those in terms of okay. um, my okay. concern is not a uh, some sort of like I don't know, you know, fascist revolution or something like right. that or a military coup or whatever. My concern is democratic backsliding. Is right. when people who get power legitimately then abuse the powers of their office to give themselves electoral advantages and to reduce things like checks and balances and rule of law and um, you know other potentially restrictions on their fiat power. Um, and the I think you're uh, right that a lot of it is tied up in Trump the person and that there's a it's quite possible that nobody else would have tried to overthrow the government after losing, you know, that it's, if there was a president DeSantis and then he lost reelection, that he would do the same thing that everybody else, you know, did when losing, which was, wow, I'm really sad that we lost. I really wish we won, but, you know, okay, I lost. Um, and, you know, which Trump didn't. So it might be unique to Trump, but this is an example of me not really being able to see past the next election. So right, right. Uh, if Trump loses, what happens to the right is it could fork it could split it could double down again uh it you know there are I, i'm not totally sure and if trump wins then the democratic backsliding risks get very serious um and not only because we saw him try to overthrow the constitution already but because he and his people have put out plans about things like how they're going to purge the civil service of professionals right. and replace them with political loyalists and like that's the sort of thing that has been a crown jewel of the United States for over a century. Of um, you know, we learned about this in school, of like getting rid of the spoils system, and where you just you know hook up somebody that likes you or hook up a relative, and that this is one of the things that made the United States a global power. Of that, you know, we have our government stocked with professionals and patriots, as opposed to um, I mean, and also there's of course a lot of like cronyism and what have you. I don't want to say it's it's very far from perfect. You definitely get better. Um, but oh, yeah. we don't have the, like th the standard is things like, you know, to be, be a public health official is things like, do you have a lot of experience and, you know, good education and professional experience and knowledge of public health? Not, are you willing to lie on behalf of the president? Right. I, I'll tell you the the moment I realized that Trump was some form of mentally ill of some kind was, and uh, you're you're the type of person who would remember this, but do you remember when early in the pandemic, Trump was doing those COVID press conferences and they did one outside with like Mike Lindell and then Trump um, just went on this rant about how the media wasn't giving him credit for the huge TV ratings his COVID press conferences were getting. And then I realized like he has no self-awareness like or here. maybe does i mean <laughs> like, no I, I think i think you're right in the sense that yeah, yeah. Uh, there's something very weird about that and it's not it's not registering what this particular audience cares about right. but it is to kind of bring us back to something we talked about earlier of a great example of him having a good instinct that what at least his fans want is the show 
that right. the, you know, like I'm getting you so much attention, you know, and uh, obviously you're in the ratings business. And, um, and this goes back to what I think is the transactional, almost sociopathic nature of his character in which the idea that some other people might actually have principles, you know, might like really believe this stuff that they're saying about, I don't know, land of the free, home of the brave, like take whatever American cliche you want, you know, nobody's above the law, um, that, oh, wait, 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 you don't actually, you're not just saying those things because you think it can get you some, like, you know, it's BS that you think can get you some temporary advantage, but you'll totally dish it other time, like you actually mean it. I think that that seems to be something that is hard for him to grasp, or at least if he does grasp that he really doesn't respect um, and he just doesn't seem to think that way is the everybody, um, you know, it, it's a similar misread with the, the right wing bubble of this idea of, oh, everybody is like this. Everybody agrees with me or everybody thinks this. And, you know, this is why, in part, he seemed to get along well with authoritarian leaders, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, as opposed to the leaders of America's close democratic allies like um, you know, leaders, also in this case, Justin Trudeau in Canada or Angela Merkel in Germany or, um, you know, the uh, or Macron in France, that um, these other ones, you know, close American partners, but who go by the standards of democracy and uh, and actually do seem to mean yeah. it. And um, that we saw this over and over and over again, uh, where he he just clearly thinks that the um, the democracy stuff is it's not weak. and rule of law is, is weakness weak. and stupid Girly. and nobody should yeah. do it. I actually believe Trump versus Biden, I actually believe there's, he could win. Now, do you, what do you, do you think, how small a chance do you think that is? Uh, he absolutely could win. And as far as I'm concerned, the important consideration is anybody who gets a major party nomination in the United States has a live chance of becoming president. And beyond that, ballparking with a percentage point doesn't really right. add anything. You know, so I think back on 2016 of where um, 538 and Nate Silver and doing their modeling of they say Hillary 75% chance, Trump 25% chance. And they claim success. You know, they, they claim victory about this prediction with Trump winning because their 25% was higher than some other people who even some forecasters were like only 1%. But of course, just saying, you know, I thought there was a chance that Trump would win. I don't really think that's much of an achievement. Um, and anybody, in fact, it was the people that were saying no chance that were being dumb. And so as long as you have a live chance, just my sense of it is that Trump would go into a fight against Biden in the election as an underdog because uh, both we already saw Biden beat Trump in an election, you know, so we have a, a recent example um, because there's a lot of relatively positive uh, trends in, you know, coming out of COVID, of inflation easing, of unemployment really low, of, you know, so other things that you could potentially point to as, if not great circumstances, positive trends. And then that uh, there are advantages of incumbency so that overall Biden would be the favorite, but all sorts of things could happen. I mean, one easy one is he could die uh, or become otherwise incapacitated. And then whoever the Democrats put up, whether it's Vice President Harris or somebody else, uh, it would maybe not have as much appeal. Um, or there could be an economic recession, or there could be a terrorist attack, or there could be a war, or there could be who knows what, you know, all, all sorts of things that maybe um, not thinking of. Uh, and it is a, a very much a open field so that yeah. as long as Trump gets the nomination, which he sure seems likely to, that means he definitely has a chance of being president again. And even if anybody thinks, oh, you know, maybe Biden has a better chance, 
then they I still wouldn't be complacent about it, especially because of something you mentioned earlier, which is that Trump turns out some people who don't otherwise participate in the political process. And this was why whenever I heard some people uh, who are opposed to this say something like, oh, I hope Trump is the nominee, not DeSantis, because Trump would be easier to beat. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, I'm not saying it's definitely wrong either, but where Trump brings out some people that Ron DeSantis simply will not. And maybe DeSantis wins some more kind of in the middle or in the center or closer, you know, right of center than Trump would, maybe, but who knows? And so it's the most I would say about it is it is a open question and I don't know who's going to win, even though I think you would say that on balance currently Biden would probably be the favorite. And just to depress my listeners, I just want to say, even if he loses to Biden in 2024, he still might be the nominee in 2028. He doesn't seem to be aging much as far as he has some weird kind of energy thing that keeps him going. Uh, That's, yeah, that's possible because like the sort of aging he seems to be doing is, you know, getting crazier, like more senile or something or more out of touch. Uh, and more set in his ways, you know, typical aging thing, um, where, and doesn't seem, you know, and has the energy, whereas Biden seems to be, you know, more with it in all those senses, but also like tiring, uh, you know, various times. So anyway, we've got, we've got two old men of, just like in last time, both the Democratic primary and the general election made me think of, if you've seen the movie Up, of like the, the old men fighting uh towards the end of up oh up up is great it's one of the classic pixar movies it's really great but so then um i if you just google old men fighting it up you'd see the image (laughs) even if you don't watch the movie he he remains he has enough energy to remain one of the greatest liars i've ever seen like if you look at the cnn town hall uh he says they talk about the wall thing and he says we did finish the wall and then literally like three sentences later he's like and they could have finished it they were so close. <laughs> yeah, the, when you say greatest liar, I, it's very weird in the regard of he is a very successful liar, but he's also a bad liar in the sense that it's pretty clear that he's lying. You know, usually when we think of good liars, we think of people who right. can sell a lie where you don't realize that they're lying. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's got a different style of, of like where it's blatantly lying kind of, but you're going to cheer it on or, but it's something you want to hear. So you'll go with it. Yeah. Uh, or you just like that it makes other people uncomfortable or whatever. So yeah, sure. If he loses, he could be the nominee in 2028, but also that is another, I can't really see past because if he loses, if he gets the nomination and loses, he will probably reject the election results again. I don't know why anybody would think he would accept them. And I don't know what he can get people to do. Uh, he has a lot less power, while well, not because he's not president, but he can sure still inspire people and, you know, get people out. And I, I don't know. So that is, you know, there's just considering different possibilities, but I, I really can't see American politics past 2024. Yeah. It becomes so much of a, if this, then that, if this, then maybe yeah. that. But yeah. with that big if makes it, very hard for me to say with any confidence of what happens after. Well, worst comes worst, we'll just use those Leonardo satellites and Dominion machines to flip them up. <laughs> Anyways, I'm just <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh... You can check out Nicholas Grossman's writings at arcdigital.com, among other publications. Thank you for listening to this episode of Public Research with Daniel Schwartz. <laughs>